Good morning, gents. Good to see you on this dark spring morning. Hope you've had a good day so far. I'll never forget one day when my, one of my sons was uh, supposed to get up in the morning, and it was still dark outside, and I went up to wake him up for school. And there he was. He was sitting on the very edge of his bunk. And I said, hey, how are you doing this morning? He said, it's been a terrible day. <laughs> you, just, you, know, you just never know what can happen in a man's life by the time he gets to Amen Bible study. But I hope it's a good day from here on out. Take your Bibles. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20. And uh, here we, we're going to uh, see the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Last week we saw that he was determined to get to Ephesus, and that was undoubtedly the main visit that Luke highlights on this third missionary journey. We saw how important that visit was to such a major city and how God had powerfully worked there by His Word and His Spirit. And we see what difference it makes to have the baptism of Jesus, not just the baptism of John the Baptist. In other words, not just the baptism of, of repentance, but the baptism of fullness. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, it was true in the Old Testament as well as the New that the only way anybody could believe was if the Holy Spirit of God would convert them. Because in our natural condition, we're not going to believe the truth of the gospel. We're going to despise it. Uh, we're, or perhaps we'll think, oh, that's helpful for other people. But we're not going to believe it ourselves without a work of the Holy Spirit. And then in the New Testament, we see that, but much more by the Spirit. What we see in the New Testament is fullness, full power. And it's like we've been brought from childhood to adulthood. Now we're self-directed because we're God-directed from the inside out. So uh, it makes a big difference when you have the spirit of power. And it is that same spirit of Jesus Christ which conquers the darkness of the nations. As we've seen, the evil one himself had blinded the nations. When Jesus came in his first incarnation, uh, he bound up the strong man, so to speak, so that he could plunder his house. And he removed the blinding of the nation so that now the gospel goes internationally, way beyond just the nation of Israel with a few proselytes. No, it goes way beyond into all the nations. And that's what's happened to us, all by the power of the Spirit, who now makes an international church. Well, Paul, as you know, goes on from Ephesus after the big turmoil there, after the great revolution, the great repentance uh, that was in a massive form, and then, of course, the resistance. Paul then leaves and goes on to Macedonia and has some other ministry. But then we're going to see that he now is ready to come back to Jerusalem, uh, and uh, he, on his way, wants to see the Ephesian elders. And here he has a very tearful uh, uh, farewell, a very famous speech that we're going to study today in Acts chapter 20. Now, as Stott points out, this is the only speech in the book of Acts, which is given to Christians. If you stop and think about it for a moment, all the speeches we've heard up until now have been speeches given to unbelievers. Peter on the day of Pentecost, the first speech, and then every speech after that is evangelistic. And the speeches that come after this are apologetic, and we're going to be looking at those in the days ahead. Because you know that when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, as the Spirit had warned him, he runs into great trouble of course, he gets arrested and several years later ends up in Rome uh, there to face trial. But before that, he has five famous apologetic 
speeches. We'll be looking at those because we can learn massively from those five apologetic speeches how we ought to be presenting the defense of the gospel in our own day. But here we have this one speech given to believers. It's full of useful uh, information for us. Let's take a look at it beginning with the first verse of Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, that would be the uproar in Ephesians, in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And you know, of course, to go from Ephesus to Macedonia, you just cross the Aegean Sea there from Turkey to Greece. That's what, what we're doing. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now you can tell this is one of those we sections. And so who else is traveling with them? Luke, of course. Now verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Oops. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, along with Robert Taylor, as as Paul talked still longer. But Paul went down and bent over him, oh wait just a minute, and talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Let that be a lesson to everyone. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak. Didn't let a near death stop him. And so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, he went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, and when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, 
Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Gentlemen, one thing that we see clearly with the Apostle Paul that Every relationship he had eventually was for the purpose of the kingdom of God. Every casual encounter uh, was potentially for the purpose of evangelizing someone. Every relationship he had was a relationship that mattered. Every relationship he had was with someone who was going to heaven or to hell. And the Apostle Paul believed the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He believed that the only way anybody could possibly make it to heaven for eternal life, uh, uh, eternal life of joy and peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And the only way someone can come into Christ is by hearing the gospel of the kingdom. Paul believed this. And because he believed it then, every relationship was an important relationship. And every friendship or every casual encounter, every uh, Everyone he would know. And we see this certainly when he's under trial in the chapters to come. Turns into an opportunity to help somebody else out. We even see it when he's working with his hands. That it's not only that he might supply his own needs in his own ministry, but that he might be able to help some other people. Uh, Because it's more blessed, he says, to give than to receive. So the Apostle Paul was always in that mode. And all the friendships or relationships that he had turned into evangelistic uh, opportunities eventually if the Lord allowed. Now, sometimes the Lord would close the door on him. Uh, There are times when Paul wanted to go here, there, and the other place, and the Spirit wouldn't allow him to. But generally speaking, his life and his relationships were centered on the kingdom of God. Now, if that sounds 
to you uh, to be very functional rather than relational. Then just realize that the function of the kingdom is to love someone to the best of your ability. And the most love you can give someone is to be able to enable them to enjoy the living God for eternity. So really, the love and intimacy of friendship and the function of your own ministry come together in those relationships. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, which is kind of a preliminary to where we're headed, you have to see that our evangelistic relationships then turn into discipleship relationships. Remember, Paul had already been to Macedonia. He had been to Achaia and to, to Greece. He had been to Athens and Corinth, and he had been there to evangelize. And his, all of his relationships were based on the gospel. And so he had, he had led many to Christ. But now notice that these evangelistic relationships, to turn, they turn into discipleship relationships. And if you have led someone to Christ or influenced someone to Christ, you want to continue to influence them. Your, your relationship with them, pouring your life into them, doesn't end when they make a profession of faith. Notice the first thing that he does in verses 1 and 2 is he encourages. Before he even leaves Ephesus, we're told there in verse 1, he is encouraging them. Why would he need to encourage them? Well, why do you think? We had about 20,000 people in a stadium uh, screaming, uh, great is Artemis. We better believe those, those believers in Ephesus need a little encouragement after a scene like that. Now, how would Paul encourage them? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but notice that wherever he goes, when he goes to Macedonia, uh, he, he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. And they went to Greece. What do you think there? He, he encouraged them as well. Now let's look at what encouragement is. First of all, let's talk about the purpose of encouragement. The purpose of encouragement is not merely to make someone feel better. Encouragement normally does make someone feel better. Not always, but normally it does make someone feel better. But that's not the ultimate purpose of it. The ultimate purpose of encouragement is Christ-likeness. We want to encourage someone to be faithful to Him and to become more like Him. That's your goal. Once again, relationships for the disciple of Christ are forged around the kingdom of God and that agenda. So our ultimate agenda, whether it's in your family or with a good friend of yours or in a Sunday school class, remember, the ultimate goal of that time together in your Sunday school class is Christ-likeness. It's not more Bible information. It's not more sophisticated theology. It's not just to have a relief with the children in the nursery, you know, have a little adult environment, you know, a little fellowship. No, the ultimate purpose is Christ-likeness. And when we talk about fellowship, fellowship is not just getting together to talk about football. There's nothing wrong with talking about football. Unless it's Final Four season, then it would be wrong because you need to talk about basketball. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the ultimate agenda. The ultimate agenda of koinonia, of fellowship, is to have fellowship with Him and to become more like Him and to learn of Him. So remember that if you want to be an encourager, you have to keep the goal in mind. You are encouraging someone to be more like Jesus Christ. Now what's the method? I mentioned here the method is past and future. Here's what I mean. If you're encouraging someone to be more like Jesus Christ, let's start with the past. You're encouraging them by bringing to mind those moments when they have clearly followed Him 
And you can encourage them by reminding them of the joy of following Him. And reminding them of the usefulness of following Him. Hey, Joe, do you remember when you were in this situation? I saw you do this and I heard you say that. And did you see how your influence just turned that whole room around? Now, Joe might have remembered that with a little help. But he might not have remembered it just at that moment. But you're encouraging him. Why are you telling him about the past? So that he'll do the same thing right now. So you're bringing up the past so that he will be strengthened. And the word encouragement just just means to strengthen, come alongside, to succor, to give strength to. So you want to encourage him as he faces the challenges of today. So you remind them about the past. So Paul would have encouraged them by reminding them about the past. You also can encourage by saying, you know what, I had the same situation myself. Here's what I did and here's what happened. So I encourage you with my own past. But the better way to encourage them is with their own past. You also encourage with the future. You encourage by reminding your brothers of the promises of God given to us. For those who are faithful, there is a crown. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he comes to the end of his life. I've, you know, I've run the race, I've finished the race, I've completed the task, I've, and now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all those who long for His appearing. So there's a crown, and Paul knew there was a crown. Paul knew there was a reward. There is a reward. You say, well, I thought that I was saved at the cross of Calvary and that all the reward would come to me there. Well, yes, you're justified. But God has gifts that go even beyond that. And you can't imagine how enormous they are. And so every little thing that you've ever done and long forgotten, God's never forgotten it. He's never forgotten one thing that you did, even with your mixed motives. Because you never did anything well with perfect motives. You never did anything that had inherent quality that deserves heaven. You never did anything like that because you're still fallen even though redeemed. But God, your Father, takes those acts that you did, the most secret, the smallest acts you ever did, as well as the large ones, you may have forgotten them, He doesn't forget a thing, and even with mixed motives, He will reward you beyond your imagination for it. We encourage one another with these things. So we encourage with reminders of the past, particularly in that person's life, and reminders about the promises of God for the future. And so if we're in the the disciple-building business, which we are, as soon as we lead someone to Christ, we're now in the business of building them up, We're staying close enough to them so that we can observe their behavior and feed back to them things that we see in their lives that are are telling about their following Christ. So we hold up the mirror not just to rebuke. We hold up the mirror primarily to encourage. Now, gentlemen, in parental relationships, psychologists tell us that a healthy balance between encouragement and correction is seven to one. I would assume that in a church, it would be at least that. Parents have a a natural uh, relationship that's embedded with that child. And we have a cultivated relationship. And so I would think it's kind of like dealing with your in-laws. I think 7 to 1 would be far too small. How about 700 to 1? And so in the church, you want to be massively encouraging. And then when those moments come... When we have to correct each other, we're being corrected in an environment where we receive constant encouragement. And that's the only way correction is going to have any use at all, is if 
we have an encouraging environment. So gentlemen, when you go back to your churches on Sunday, I suggest you go uh, with the goal of dropping at least five words of encouragement. I mean, really, just pray before you go to church. Lord, help the preacher. Keep us all awake. Help us to learn. May we worship you and give you honor and glory. And Lord, enable me to encourage five people today. You ever done that? And you get up on a Sunday morning thinking about your ministry to other people instead of what you're going to be receiving. And not just your ministry from the Sunday school lectern, but your ministry face-to-face with those that you'll even see in the hallway. So that when you see something going on, gentlemen, you must make a note of it. You know in your business you do this all the time. If you see a business opportunity, a, a customer drops a hint about something in your product line that he might need, <clears throat> get out the iPhone and make a note of it, you know, and next time you're there, you're going to make a proposal. You see an opportunity. Here's the opportunity in the business of the kingdom. It's when you see Christ-likeness, you've got an opportunity to feed it back to that person and let them know you noticed it, you were, you were encouraged by it, and that you're, you're celebrating God's pleasure in it. Men have to learn to communicate words of encouragement. Now, if you're married, you know what I'm going to say. Come on now. Uh, that's got to be of the essence of your relationship with the missus, of the essence of your relationship with her, are words of encouragement. And I know what you're thinking, you're guys. And so you're thinking, you know, if I start that business, I'm just going to build up the expectations and I'll never be able to satisfy her, you know? If I start it this week, the next week she'll want a little more, you know? And I'll just, I'll just sink. In my, I'll never be able to keep the curve up. You know, now I've got really low expectations. I never say squat to her, you know? And she doesn't expect anything. She doesn't expect anything. I get sex every once in a while and there's food on the table. Who cares, you know? Let me tell you what happens with encouragement. Actually, when you encourage somebody and you build them up, they actually become more self-sustained than they were before you started. Actually, the expectations go down because they're not so hungry for it the way we've often left them without encouragement. So when we don't encourage them, we leave them hungry. And so you're led to this illusion that by encouraging, you're just going to build the standard up. It's just the opposite. When you encourage someone and build them up, guess what they start doing? Encouraging other people. It's amazing. I just I suggest you try it out. I don't suggest it. I command it in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's right there. So the Apostle Paul, he went encouraging. And we're told in the Bible, encourage each other with these words. You get the word encourage over and over again in the Bible. So it's not like you can just say, oh, you know, so-and-so, he's got the gift of encouragement. Well, maybe he does. But it's kind of like saying someone's got the gift of being nice. So what does that give you the excuse to be, you know? So we're all to be nice. We're all to be gentlemen. We're all to be encouragers, every single one of us. So if you are starting in arrears, and usually that means you didn't get much of it when you were a child, so you never cultivated it, you don't even know how to get the words out of your mouth, start, start up. And if you don't even know how to start, there's some men in this room who are great encouragers. And they're probably in some of your discussion groups. And I suggest you just come forth with it and say, guys, I need some help. And somebody there is going to be able to match up with you and do a little coaching. We really need to be coached in this. So we do it with the goal of Christ-likeness. And an encouragement is something positive. Remember, positive. Honey, those, uh, those yellow shoes are not nearly as ugly as the orange one you wore yesterday. That's not positive. Encouragement is something positive. Secondly, encouragement is something true. 
Honey, I just love those yellow shoes. <laughs> no, it's true. If you say something positive that's not true, that's called flattery, and that's a form of manipulation. You're trying to get someone to like you. So now it's all about you. Flattery is about you, really, not the other person. Encouragement is something that you discern in them that's true, that's positive. It's about the past and it's about the present. Now, let's talk about the secret of encouragement. The secret is your encouragement. And what's the secret of your encouragement? From Christ. Gentlemen, here's, what, here's the reason that normally speaking, the more mature you find the Christian man, the more of an encourager you discern him to be. Here's why. The more mature Christian man is generally the man who is able to believe that God actually loves him. He's the man generally who believes with all of his faults and all of his failures and all the stupid things he's done in life that to God ultimately that doesn't matter, that he's clothed with the righteousness of Christ, he's loved as a son, and he is greatly encouraged. There's the man who intuitively encourages now, we can mechanically encourage because I can put on my list for the day, I will encourage five people at church this week. And then I can grunt it out on Sunday. But if I want to go on Sunday and see the people of, of God and encourage intuitively, the encouragement has to be in my heart. Because the encouragement I give to you is not going to come because you're so pleased with my encouragement. Believe me, if you're encouraging people because you like the feedback you get when they get encouraged, you're going to wear out because there's never enough of it. You never get enough feedback to justify going back and encouraging again. There's only one place you get the resources to encourage people. It's from Him. And then your heart is overflowing. And now you have something to give. So the secret of Christian encouragement is to be encouraged by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this you find, of course, in the apostle's life. Everywhere he goes, he goes encouraging. Because the kingdom agenda demands that we give encouragement because the carrying out of the kingdom requires that the people in the kingdom be encouraged. Now, secondly, I just mentioned in verse 3a that he not only encourages, but he teaches and counsels. And the reason we know that, that we know that when he was in Corinth, that's exactly what he did. So he went encouraging and he went, obviously, teaching and counseling ministering the Word of God. Thirdly, he partners. There was a plot made against him, and what did he do? He turned to his friends, gentlemen. Paul needed his friends. The further out you get in your aggression for the kingdom of God, the stronger your leadership is, the bolder it is, the more faith you have to step out on behalf of Christ, the more you're going to need your friends. If you don't need friends for what you're doing, then what you're doing couldn't be very important in the kingdom of God. you got to have friends. So when the plot comes against Paul, look at all these people from all over the place that help him get from one place to another. Everywhere he's going is somebody's hometown. Where did these friends come from? He evangelized most of them. He discipled them and continues to disciple them. And now his ministry influence is only growing through his partners. So look that... These evangelistic relationships turn into discipleship relationships where we're encouraging, we're teaching and counseling, and then we're depending upon each other through both company 
and help. Paul had company and Paul had help. And he made it clear to them he needed their help. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm so, well, he actually does at one point say, I'm glad you're helping because it's good for you. He says that to the Philippians. But in addition to that, he says thank you for your help because I'm grateful for your help. Now, fourthly, notice in this story with Eutychus in, in verses 7 through 12 that our discipleship relationships include comfort. We care about the people to whom we're ministering and we comfort them. And here's Paul giving a sermon till midnight. <laughs> you know what? Eutychus's name means lucky. <laughs> it reminds me of a story of the guy who had a dog, you know, and someone was looking at his dog and the dog had one ear that had been chawed off and the other one was half gone and his tail was broken and sticking up this way and he was on three legs because one was broken and the guy said to, to his friend, what's your dog's name? He said, his name's Lucky. <laughs> and Eutychus was kind of like that. Paul preaches a sermon and, you know, there, you can just feel it. It's late at night and they're in these houses. They don't have, you know, central air or heating or anything. So there's no mo movement of the air. And he's sitting up there in a window and the candlelight, you know, is flickering and he's kind of going, Arr. and we're somewhere on the, the hypostatic union, you know, or the atonement and, and you don't flop, you know, he goes out three stories, you know, right down. So of course you think he's dead, but uh, Paul says, no, there's life in him. And we're told they're not, a, not just a little bit comforted. Well, it's funny. It's a funny story. And yet what we see is Paul's down there on his knees over the man. He cares about him. He tends to him. He cares about his family. And so when we get involved in the kingdom, we can get injured. Even if it's falling asleep during a sermon, you can get injured in this business. And Paul is showing comfort. And that's part of discipleship. It's in real relationships where discipleship takes place. Real caring. Real tending to one another. Going to each other's funerals. <laughs> and each other's loved ones' funerals. And things like that. Being engaged. And that's the way the Apostle Paul did his ministry. Uh, even with... Uh, Eutychus and his family. Now let's look at verses 13 30 through 35, which is the heart of what we've got before us. And here we're going to see, in this great final farewell to the Ephesian elders, that our discipleship relationships turn into leadership relationships. Our discipleship relationships turn into leadership relationships. So you see what's happening everywhere Paul goes. He's thinking about the kingdom of God and about the eternity of that person with whom he's relating. He leads them to Christ. Then he begins to encourage them, teach and counsel them, partner with them, comfort them, and build them up in Christ. Then he takes them and furthermore makes leaders out of them. And so here we have Ephesian elders. So where'd they come from? Well, just like Paul told Timothy later on, appoint elders. Paul himself had been in the business of pointing elders. So wherever he goes, he evangelizes, plants churches with elders in them. Let me tell you what every one of the 127 neighborhoods of Memphis, Tennessee need. They need elders. They need churches with people appointed to lead in those neighborhood churches that care about all the people, about their counseling, their teaching, their encouragement, their comforting in every area of life. We need church leaders in those neighborhoods, every neighborhood in Memphis, to be, to be doing that. Now, we know in Memphis, 127 neighborhoods, and we know that there are 90 of them, 87 of them, who are in serious arrears in some area of community life. I mean, serious arrears, either education or 
job opportunities, economic development, uh, safe, public safety, so on. Uh, we have most of our neighborhoods in serious arrears. Only 10, 11% of our population lives in what we would call neighborhoods of choice. What's the fundamental problem? It's the lack of healthy churches with healthy leadership who really cares about those people. So wherever Paul goes, if he wants to bless the world and take the kingdom of God everywhere, he not only proclaims the kingdom, he helps bring it into its initial form before Jesus Christ comes back. And that's going to be done through his church. So now he's giving this message to elders, and let's see what he says to them. First of all, we notice that when you're leading leaders, you lead by example. Verses 18b through 23. You lead by example. That's the f- most important thing about leadership. As Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, said, in order to be a good leader, you must first of all be a good follower. People who are following you must see that you're following. Everybody has a boss, especially if they're a Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ. Every child needs to know that her father is under orders from the Lord Jesus Christ and he is submissive to him and to his authority. We lead by example. And notice, in order to do that, first of all, we must live among the people. You yourselves know, he says in verse 18b, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul didn't just go hang out in Smyrna and commute to Ephesus every day. We need teachers who will live in the neighborhood. We need teachers who will live among the people. Because you cannot learn the kingdom unless you can observe the behavior of the teachers. So gentlemen, in your teaching, whether it's small group, Sunday school, wherever it is, you must allow the people to see how you live. Now, there are those, you know, you need your own private life as well. But it's private life not because you want to go live a different lifestyle, you know, for one-third of your week, and you want to visit over here and be a helper every once in a while. No, you're, you're only private because of the kingdom of God, of your service, eventually. But you cannot, you cannot teach without leading by example. Let me give you an example. If at Second Presbyterian Church, we want to teach our members that the minimum level of giving for the kingdom of God really ought to be the tithe, 10% of one's income before taxes. Okay. Let's assume we wanted to teach that. I can teach lessons on that. I have taught lessons on that. But let me tell you where the real lesson's going to come from. When Doug Hickson goes out into the hallway and someone stops him and says, Hey, Doug, you're an officer in this church. You heard that sermon. Tell me, what do you do? What do you do? That's where that person gets taught. That's where it happens. It wasn't here. I started the discussion from the pulpit. Doug finishes the discussion in the hallway. Gentlemen, if you're leading, the thing that really counts is your example. Just think about it. By the time you were three years old, you knew if bad words were really bad. Your mama told it was bad, but if you said, and then she laughed, then you knew it really wasn't a bad word. It was only a bad word because you're supposed to say it's a bad word because that's what society demands. But your mama didn't really think it was a bad word. Same way with everything else in the kingdom. If you do not incarnate it, if you do not live it out, you are wasting your breath to teach it. Because eventually, 
with anything that anybody cares about, they're going to ask you, what do you do? And your most powerful teaching tool is tell them what you do. There you have it. So teaching by example is of the essence of the Christian teaching because ours is a teaching about a whole life. It's not just a series of doctrines. Secondly, you must, as an example, serve the Lord. He, he says to them, I was serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So the people must see you by example, serving the Lord even in the midst of great opposition, which leads thirdly to serving courageously. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. When Paul was teaching them things that would help them, it cost him. And he says, I did not shrink from my duty. Why? Because I wanted you to know the Lord. And so I'm willing to take on the abuse of outsiders, whether they're Jews or Romans, so that you might have the gospel of life. And he was able to say to them, you know my example. You know that I serve the Lord fervently. I'm passionate about Him. And you know that I'm so passionate that I'm willing to lay my life down in order to get this message out. And then notice in verses 22 and 23, fourthly, he, we must keep it up. He says, and not only did I have abuse in the past, I'm now going to go get some more abuse. I'm going to Jerusalem, he says, constrained by the Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but I do know that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me there, and indeed they did. So Paul's example is that there's something more important than my breath and my heartbeat, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can see it in me. And so he's basically saying to them, he's preparing them now for them to lead in the same way. Paul's not asking them to lay down their lives apart from his laying down his life. You must lead by example. And you cannot display the gospel unless it commands everything in your life. It's a denial of the gospel to preach the gospel of eternal life and then live contingently. Oh, I'll do it if it doesn't embarrass me too much. I'll do it if I don't lose the job over it. I'll do it if no one makes fun of me. You then deny the gospel. To proclaim the gospel demands that your whole life be engaged in it. And then you're asking everybody else to do that. And the only way you can make an authentic uh, invitation to that kind of life is that you show them how to live that life and to live it with joy, which is what the apostle had. So, first of all, lead by example. Secondly, know your mission. And here you have in verse 24, this great summary, a verse worth memorizing, a great summary of the apostle's understanding of the meaning of his own life. Here is his life mission statement put into one sentence. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How could you get more succinct than that? That the purpose of my life is to testify to the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, a ministry that was given to me by Him, a ministry that is more important than my own life or comfort or convenience. There you have it. He knew that. And so everything in his life intuitively comes out of that. Gentlemen, if you don't have that in your gut, 
You're constantly trying to put on someone else's armor like David was when he put on Saul's armor to go fight Goliath. It didn't fit him. It just it was cumbersome. It wasn't helpful at all. David was better going with his slingshot. That he had intuitively. You've got to have your own slingshot. It's got to be powerful. But it's got to come from a heart where your gut is taken up with Christ. Otherwise, you're always trying to put on something externally. You're trying to image manage. Or you're trying to somehow do some good without it coming out of your own heart. The Apostle Paul says to these elders, that's not the way I lived among you. That's not the way I thought among you. And don't you dare try it yourselves. Now look, see, he then passes the baton. If we are building up leaders, we must first of all set the example. We must know our mission so that we can communicate to them. And then we have to pass on intentionally the baton of leadership. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. First of all, he explains his departure. Guys, I'm cutting out of here and I'm not coming back. You won't see my face again. So if we're going to have a church in Ephesus, guess who's going to lead it? Not me. I won't be back teaching here. I won't be counseling anymore. I won't be raising Eutychus from the dead. <laughs> I won't be doing any of the stuff you've seen me do. You guys are in charge. And so there comes a point in leadership development when you have to pass the baton on. And that can be very difficult to do because usually the Ephesian elders won't do it just the way you, the apostle, did it. And they didn't. But they were in the kingdom and they did it their way. And Paul says to them, I'm not going to be here. You know, there was a CEO who uh, every five years would disappear for six months. He said, the CEO is dead, and he would leave. And, of course, his strategy was then all the executive VPs had to pick up and run the place, and he was developing leaders. I'm not suggesting all of you could do that in your business or should do it. I'm just saying there's a way in which you have to imagine your absence in order to do any good. If you're always imagining your presence, you're in an illusion. You're not going to be here. There's going to be a time when we've had our last sighting of you. And we need to be able to get along without you. And you need to be thinking about that right now if you love the rest of us. So let's get these leaders developed. Furthermore, in leadership, your job description should be, be continually changing and morphing. You should not have the same job description now that you had six or seven years ago. And the reason is, you may have the same title, you may have the same office, but you don't have the same job because you've been developing people and they're taking over things you used to do. The leader only does what the leader only can do. If the leader is doing what everybody else can do, he's not developing leaders. That's exactly what the apostle is doing. He's planting churches and he's raising up elders and then he's handing over the church to them whether he wanted to or not. He realizes that by the force of his mission, which is to reach the world for Christ, he cannot stay and be the elder of Ephesus. Secondly, he reminds them of the preparation they've received. He said, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel. He says, you've got everything you need. I've explained the entire counsel of God to you. I've taken you through the Westminster Confession of Faith with all the scripture proofs. You know it all. <laughs> I've taken you from Genesis to Revelation. Of course, they didn't have Revelation at that point. But he says, I've taken you through the scriptures and I've interpreted them for you in a Christocentric manner. You have the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back. I didn't hide anything, didn't hold anything back. You got it all. Now go pass it on to other people. Thirdly, he describes the mission. And here, once again, you have a verse that needs to be memorized. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
And he says, first of all, notice, when he's telling these elders to take care of people, he says, first of all, watch out for yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Shepherd your own soul. One thing that an elder or a leader, a spiritual leader, learns to do is to pastor his own soul. Now, we need other people. Paul had them all the time. But the fundamental pastor, the number one pastor under Jesus Christ of your soul is, guess who? Yourself. And you learn how to feed your own soul with the Word of God. You learn how to pray for the Spirit to come and to cleanse your soul and to renew your soul. You, need, you learn how to move into this Christian disciplines to revive your own soul. You learn how to care for your own soul. And the reason is, if you don't care for your soul, you can't care for another soul. If the doctor comes in and he, he's obviously 400 pounds and he's got diabetes and heart disease because he can't stop eating Twinkies and he tells you you need to lose 20, you go and something's wrong with this picture. And so he's got to learn to take care of himself. If he believes in what he's talking about, there ought to be at least some semblance of health in the man. All right? Same thing with you. You want to be sure that you can say to someone who says, you know, my soul is languishing. My soul is tired. My soul is worn out. I go to church and I'm bored. Here's the most important question for you to be able to answer. So tell me, what do you do when you're bored and languishing? You have to know how to tell someone to doctor their own soul. You know, we've gotten pretty good now on the internet at looking up all the diseases and the symptoms and the diagnosis and the treatment. And by the time we go to the doctor, we can almost tell him as much as he tells us, right? I'm sure that's got to be frustrating when you have all these amateurs, you know, these doctors have to listen to all this amateur advice. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, But on the other hand, it's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. And then you'd have to say, this is part of the success of the medical profession. That they're now getting lay people to study their own bodies and study diseases and study medicines. This is good. Same will be true with us. Let's get everybody to talk about spiritual diseases and how to treat them and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. That's what you want to do is to get people to, uh, to take care of themselves. So notice that he describes the mission. Take care of yourselves and all the flock. Notice the word all there. You can underline it in the Scripture verse there in verse 28. All the flock. Not your favorite ones. Not your golfing buddies. Not the ones that you think are smart. Not the ones who are charming or have a lot of influence. And you like to be able to say, well, I go to church or so-and-so. No, all the flock. You're caring for all of them if you're a spiritual leader. And notice who's put you in charge of this. You say, the church elected me. Yes, the church might have elected you. The Sunday school might have asked you to teach. But look who really did it. The Holy Spirit. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Or that word is bishop. He's made you an overseer. Someone who cares for other people. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Or as Stott prefers, the blood of his own. To say the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. If it's his own blood, there's a sense in which, of course, God can speak of his blood because in the second person of the Trinity, he became flesh and gave his blood, if you will. But he purchased this church with his own blood. So when you're dealing with God's people, remember how valuable they are. They are so valuable, God purchased them with his own blood. 
Now move on and you see that in passing the baton, we warn them of difficulties. Paul says, from among your own selves are going to become heretics. Why is Paul telling them this? Because it's true. He reminds them, this happened to me. If you think that you're going to be unopposed in your Christian ministry, think again. The Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ were opposed. So you think you're smarter than they are? That you deserve better treatment than they got? Paul's saying no. He's warning them of difficulties. And you should do the same thing as you're developing spiritual leaders. Let them know what the downside is. And then look at verse 32. He not only passes the baton, but now he commends them to God. He commends them to God and to the word of His grace, which is what? It's the gospel. And what does this gospel do, verse 32? But builds them up and gives them an inheritance. So he's commending them to God. He's saying, gentlemen, I'm not going to be here with you anymore, but guess what? I never was the clue or the secret to your existence or your usefulness. Let me tell you who the secret is. It is He, and He stays with you. And His gospel stays with you. And that gospel will build you up. And so when you're saying, where's Paul when we need him? Just turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ because His gospel builds you up and it also gives you the inheritance of the saints. Everything you need for life and godliness, you find in Him, not in the Apostle Paul. So by passing the baton on in spiritual leadership, He is actually giving them the very clue to where the strength comes from, from Christ Himself. Now, notice verses 33 through 35e, he charges them to serve. He's saying, now, but let's just wrap it up. I didn't desire your money. I didn't desire your clothing. I didn't want anything from you except co-citizenship in the kingdom of God. And when I worked to provide for my own needs, I had some to give over to the weak and the poor. Because the Lord has already told us it is more blessed to give than to receive. And He's saying to them, you do the same. He's charging them to walk into His steps. Gentlemen, if you set an example, then you can give a charge. You're not perfect. You're not saying I'm the perfect exemplar of everything I've ever taught you. But you're saying, look, I know I've done these things. And and perhaps you'll do them better. But walk in these steps because this is what these people need. Now, lastly, we come to verses 36 through 38. And here we have this tearful departure. And what we're learning here is that our, just like our, our evangelistic relationships become discipleship relationships. Our discipleship relationships become leadership relationships. And our leadership relationships turn into fervent relationships. Best friends you'll ever make are the friends that you make in the kingdom of God. The best friends you'll ever make. And if your heart's taken up with the kingdom and you're encouraging others to come alongside and do the same thing, you will make lifelong friends and you'll make eternal friends and they'll be your best friends. Notice, first of all, it's prayerful. The closest friends I've ever had in my life are the ones with whom I get on my knees and pray. And that's where real close friendship is. Close friendship is not just hanging out. In the kingdom, a close friendship is someone who takes you before the Lord. Sometimes when you don't even want to go. But they'll take you there. And they open the door for you. And when you don't want to knock on the door, they'll knock on the door for you. And they'll bring you along. 
I wish I had time to tell you about it, some examples of my own life where people have done that for me. It's prayerful. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. They were his prayer partners. And if you're in church leadership, you need to be sure that above all, you guys are prayer partners. Secondly, tearful. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Look at these relationships. When they part, it hurts. And in the kingdom of God, every relationship that you're working on should turn into this sort of relationship as far as you have anything to do with it so that to part would be a tearful departure. That's what happens in kingdom relationships. You're involved in the most important business of all together. You're sharing your hearts together. It's demanding everything in you together. Well, of course it should be tearful. As my wife said to a congregation we left years and years ago, she said, I couldn't do this apart from the doctrine of the resurrection. Thirdly, look at verse 38. It's missional. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. They accompanied him to the ship. Having prayed, with tears streaming down their faces, they take him to the ship where he's going to go to Jerusalem and the Spirit tells him he's going to face afflictions and trials all on the way. And they walk with him to go to that ship. Why? Because they're in the mission together. And brothers die together. And brothers fight together. And we encourage each other even when the tears are coming down our eyes. There's the mission of Christ. It's prayerful. It's tearful. But it's missional. And of course, because of that, we know it's absolutely triumphant. There's coming a day when there will be no more tears. Those who sow in tears will, weep, will uh, reap with shouts of joy. And all of our weeping will turn into joy. And all of our sacrifice will turn into enormous wealth. And all of our estrangement and distance and parting will turn into one grand welcome before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe this, and that's the reason that we undergo all the trials of the kingdom of God, and we encourage others, all of our friends, to come along with us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this grand and noble kingdom. Thank you for the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the mission that you've given to every one of us, and we pray that you'll help us to make friends and to lead our friends to Jesus Christ, our greatest friend and then to serve them in discipleship, and then uh, to serve them in leadership development, and then, Lord, to enjoy the fervency of those friendships sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And now we commend ourselves to you again and to the word of your grace, knowing that you will build us up and that you will give us a mighty inheritance for the day to come. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.